Welcome to the Clinical Research Podcast, bringing you the latest developments in research explained by our world-leading clinicians, academics and scientists based in Nottingham. So I'm talking to Professor Dominic Shaw, who recently published a blog on the university site about advice for young, well, early career researchers. Um, morning, Dom. Morning. So just before we get into that, can you describe how you started in research? What was it that attracted you and what was your, what was your path into it? Um, that's a really good question. I think you are in a very privileged position as a doctor because you get to, you know, if you're, if you're a good doctor and you, you know what you're about, you get to make a difference to individual patients one at a time. You know, not every day, but certainly the times I have made a difference, it's stuck in my mind. And that, that gives you an enormous sense of, um, of well-being in a way and of happiness. And it, it became apparent to me that some of the work that um, I was doing in asthma had the ability to also improve people's lives, but on a population level. And that, that appealed. And the second thing I found quite interesting was, like I say this to all my PhD students, is only when you really look at the evidence that's behind the guidelines do you realise that a lot of the things we do are based on castles of sand in terms of evidence. There isn't a lot of evidence for day in, day out medical care. And that interested me, actually understanding the nuts and bolts of how we got to where we are <clears throat> with asthma care, but also other types of care, me medical care, respiratory care. And, and suddenly you realise that all that solidity and faith you had in the data and evidence and practice that you were doing, it's a bit shaky. That was a wake-up call for me. So you wanted to do something about that? Yeah, I, I think so. I want, firstly, I wanted to understand why it was shaky, what were the process for that was, and then address the questions that um, I thought were, were important. I mean, what, I'm just thinking, was it like a particular moment or a particular, I don't know, patient or situation? I'm a clinical academic, which means that most of the problems that I wish to investigate come from ideas I have had myself or areas that we've been involved in um, separately. So the, the, the situation I mentioned on the blog is the blood gas study. So that was um, a really simple idea. So patients with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, are breathless, very common disease, um, much more common in smokers, one of the commonest causes of admissions to hospital in the UK and worldwide. And when they come in, they're poorly, they have exacerbations, and these can be life-threatening. And one way of assessing these exacerbations is doing what's called an arterial blood gas. Now, as a junior doctor, I, like many others, well, probably all struggle to do arterial blood gases. They're very difficult to do, unless you're very well experienced. And for the poor patients, they're very painful. You have to try and hit the radial artery with a small needle. And, and patients do not like it at all. And the reason you do an arterial blood gas too is assess the pH, how acid the blood is, and the carbon dioxide level to see if someone's going into ventilatory failure. And, and I realized, well, I thought actually, you can probably replace the arterial blood gas with a venous blood gas. And we all have venous blood tests. It's a simple blood test from the arm that everyone has in GP practices day in, day out. Uh, replace it with a combination of venous blood gas and pulse oximetry, so a finger saturation measurement. So I, I wrote a, a grant application, and this is where my tenacity came in. Well, I mentioned tenacity, I'm not sure I'm that tenacious, but uh, I wrote a grant application for the research for patient benefit stream, and it got turned down. So I, I added another author who was an expert, uh, another co-applicant, an expert in the area from Australia, I got her involved. 
reapply, got the money, did the study, largest study of blood gas analysis uh, in the world to date, all performed here at City Hospital and at Queen's, and then I tried to publish it. And again, this is where it fall falls down. I, I tried to put it in Thorax, which is the leading respiratory journal in the UK, and they declined the paper. They said no. And it's very rare for you to appeal a decision in the publication. Editors don't like it, and you, you get a bad name. But I thought this is important because the paper showed that you could replace virtually all arterial blood gases with a much simpler venous blood gas. Now, that doesn't sound particularly impressive, but actually, when you scale it up to all the patients admitted every day up and down the UK and across the world, that's a big change. And in fact, the paper was recently got accepted after I, I pushed back, and it's just been quoted in the, in the international COPD guidelines that were released end of last year. So now every country in the world should be replacing arterial with venous blood gases. So from a tiny germ of an idea that I had just from going around on the ward and seeing patients and thinking, I was able to eventually change healthcare across the globe in a tiny sliver of care, but you know, enough to make me think that's worth it. A lot of the advances or a lot of the stuff that gets investigated is just like these tiny incremental changes, or we know this other tiny little thing that might lead to something else that might lead to something else. What would you say to an early career researcher who was thinking, well, I could do that, but then I'll spend four years doing this and then it'll be, it'll be a, a tiny little change that won't I won't really see affecting anybody. But, yes, that is absolutely true. That, that happens. Um, so firstly, you have to keep faith because you're doing it for the right reason. And secondly, that is life. And, you know, there'll be tiny incremental change, tiny incremental change, and then suddenly the fire will get lit and off it will go. And your area will become important or there'll be a breakthrough or a discovery uh, or something will change and that will lead to patient benefit. But, but people do, you know, this is the problem with research. It, it, it is hard work. It doesn't always lead to the change you expect it to, but you have to have faith in it. Um, the other issue that a lot of my junior colleagues don't like is that performing research is like running a business. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not in charge of an SME, but I have to make sure that my PhD students have funding, my research nurses have funding, the database officer has funding, the lab scientists have funding, that the patient public involvement groups have funding. There's money for travel, money for consumables, money for computers, money for reagents. And it's a constant spinning of plates. And I think what tends to happen is researchers spin a fair few plates, hoping that one of those will then turn out into something that, that makes that big difference. But you have to spin the plates just to get the funding in to keep the whole thing from collapsing. That links to another thing that you mentioned in the blog, um, which was about being able to sell an idea. It's, I know it's very easy to get kind of immersed in, in the detail and the technicalities of it, whereas actually that doesn't always work if you're trying to persuade somebody to give you money, does it? No, I mean, it, you've seen it with COVID, with the pandemic. The people who have made the biggest impact are the ones who can communicate their ideas the best. And I review lots of grants for various um, research boards and, and charities and, and IHR, and they all have a lay summary. And... The lay summary is normally very badly written, not in terms of the detail or the science or the methodology, but just in terms of the casual reader. And, and really, the average reading age of the UK population isn't that high. Not everyone has received secondary education or university education. So you have to think 
as though you were looking at this through very fresh eyes and you have to write a summary that is truly lay. And if you can think about how, you know, one thing I was taught is the elevator pitch. Can you explain your idea in 30 seconds? If you can't, you need to go away and make sure you can, because that's, that's the time frame for people to have interest in you is about 30 seconds. And if you can get that 30 seconds in and get interest, you're on to a winner. If not, don't think about it. You must have done a fair few of those. What would you what would you tell a student who'd come up with a something that they, they really needed advice on? What would you say to them? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you have to um, convey your excitement and uh, interest in the idea, but that's not enough. Just because you're excited and interested doesn't mean that someone else is. And people in the academic world are natural skeptics. I don't think they're cynics, but they're, they're taught to question methodologies. They're taught to question results look for the reasons that things worked and things didn't work. So you have to be able to present an idea in a way that answers some of those pushbacks that you're going to get in the first 30 seconds. And if you get into the second 30 seconds, not become too defensive. Because if you're not willing to take criticism or willing to take feedback, again, you'll lose interest. People will lose interest in you. You can't just say you're wrong. You have to listen and answer and answer in a way they understand. Right, because again, again, in the blog, one of the things you mentioned was kind of almost this tension almost between, on the one hand, yeah, you've got to sort of have a thick skin and a persistence, but on the other hand, that can tip over into arrogance. And you know, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. Occasionally, academics can be a little bit arrogant. Oh no, certainly, and um, I'm sure that the very, very successful ones. I wouldn't count myself in 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 that, you know, that small 1% have, have a degree of that. I think it's, um, that's probably present in any um, job, whether you're a, a tennis player, a uh, Formula One driver, or, you know, head of a FTSE 100 company, or a world leading academic. I think you have to have that degree of confidence. That's great when you're at that level. The trouble is when you're going up the ladder, that's actually counterproductive. So, that's exactly what I mean about attention. At what level of confidence, what level of confidence is right for that situation? And being dogmatic and overly confident when you're coming through the ranks, climbing up the greasy pole of research life, isn't that helpful. However, you have to have a degree of confidence in your ideas. You have to be able to with, withhold, withstand the buffeting of, of counter ideas that you're going to get and be able to defend them, listen and learn. Another one of the things that you mentioned was uh, basically finding a mentor. And the question that brings is, yeah, is, that's great. How and how do I sort of seduce them, I suppose? Um, yeah. <laughs> and what I say to people is that you have to learn from everybody. So learn from people who you admire, take lessons from them, watch what they do, watch how they talk watch how they react but at the same time look at people who you don't admire or don't like or don't respect don't just ignore them because you don't respect them or don't admire them but learn why try and work out what the character traits the work traits the academic traits of those people are and once you've worked that out approach people who you admire and want to follow and ask them have they got any ideas or projects or funding and be enthusiastic be helpful be kind uh, and make a pleasant nuisance of yourself. Not a nuisance, a pleasant nuisance. Looking back on you 20 years ago, 
30 years ago, what would you tell yourself now? What do you, what do you think were the mistakes you made? Perish the thought. Um, well, I continue to make mistakes. I, I don't think you ever stop making mistakes. I think what you have to do is to continue to learn. So I think lifelong learning, both academically, clinically, and from your mistakes, um, is important. I probably, um, on occasion, spread myself too thin because I find everything interesting. I find research in health services uh, change, in epidemiology, in drug studies, in clinical care. I find it all so interesting and all uh, all the areas, I, I feel like I make a change. Sometimes I've spread myself too thin. So occasionally I'll talk to myself and say, right, what am I going to concentrate on this year? And I think not only is it right place and right person, right place, right time, but you won't be that person if you're not knocking on the door or coming across like, actually, you want to help, you want to get involved. Um, I'm not sure if, if we encourage that anymore in, in the current training system, for, for doctors particularly. What do you mean by that? Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think it's become very regimented in terms of how the training works. Um, and the ability to jump from one specialty to another, the ability to, to taste and test different specialties to find your niche, and the pressure on people to come through a system faster is greater. So I think that, that ability to play around at the margins and then nail your colours to the mast um, is not, it's not there. Hence my advice to people to, to try and really learn from people who they admire and who they have less admiration for because that speeds up the process of you working out where you are. You also done some stuff based on apps and digital tech as as well. Do you just want to first of all explain that what that is? This is some work I'm really really proud of. Um, not um, I can't take credit for, for for where it's got to at all. But if you look at the working week, about seventy five percent of the entire working week working year is actually in the period as we classify as out of hours. So it's not Monday to Friday, Friday nine to five. And what used to happen in the out of hours period, if a nurse wanted something doing, they'd have to bleep the doctor. The bleep would go through a nurse, a nurse coordinator. He or she would then bleep the doctor. The task would then get logs, processed and done. And it was just so inefficient. We came up with a plan to introduce this wireless messaging system based on, at the time, Blackberries, if you remember Blackberries, that's what we used first of all, into the hospital. And it revolutionized pretty much overnight how we ran out of hours hospital care. Using my academic head, I published papers on the back of it. And those published papers allowed Nerve Centre and the hospital to prove a business case for introduction of it more widely. Both that and uh, the blood sampling thing that you mentioned, but neither of those are maybe what people would think of as clinical research, are they? They're not like a guy over a microscope looking at stuff. They're both to do with systems and pathways. Absolutely, I do. You know, I do do work with microscopes and and um, bugs and cells, and that is rewarding. But the area that I think in medicine that has most opportunity is probably in in, in care provision. There's some lovely work in Derby showing that you can reduce the number of CT scans or reduce the number of blood tests, and that might sound no, oh, 
that's not very sexy, but actually it is because if you expand that overpopulation, the, the change in care and the change in costs and the improvement in care is absolutely massive. And I think there's there's real uh, opportunity there if you have the right clinical question. I guess sort of coming out of that digital thing maybe is the, your chance for a big look forward what's coming up. What I'm thinking of specifically, I suppose, is particularly coming out of COVID as we hopefully are. And I know there's a big push towards doing more things digitally. I don't know if that's something that you've looked at or where, where do you think it's going? I was lucky enough to be involved right at the first outset of digital inhalers so we know that in asthma care patients don't take their inhaled medication very often or appropriately many of the time and that's linked to poor out outcome and about 10-15 years ago uh, there are a couple of companies that sprang up independently who made monitors for inhalers that stick on the inhalers and they measure how many puffs you take of your inhaler and i looked at those devices and i thought you know that's quite interesting because I can foresee a time when there'll be a GPS location and you'll be able to link the traffic, pollution, pollen, exercise data. And you'll start to be able in you know, a few years time to get a better understanding of the types of exacerbations in asthma. So are they viral, are they bacterial, are they related to air pollution, are they related to, to fungal um, counts in the air? And that's where we're at at the moment. So, there are quite a few companies, very early days, and it's, it's mainly research-based at the moment, but they make smart inhalers that, that clip over your normal inhaler, the sort of add-on clip-on devices, and they capture how many puffs people are taking, and they tell people how good their inhalation is, so what their inhaler technique is like. They link into other data streams, and they can tell a doctor or nurse looking after them if they're at risk of an asthma attack. At least that's the, the future is not too far away. And then you can build that into all the other smart tech. So I work with engineers, such as Steve Borgen at the university, looking at new ways of measuring respiratory rates, pulse oximetry, and um, combining all those things. I mentioned Andrew Fogarty and Steve. We're, we've just got some data out, show very interesting data that's going to cause a bit of a, a storm, showing that pulse oximetry is less accurate uh, the darker your skin tone. And that's been a major uh, finding that actually people have known about for many years, but hasn't really been looked at in, the, in, in real life. And we used our data from COVID patients and we found that patients with darker skin, their relationship between their arterial blood gas, which I mentioned at the start of the podcast, and their pulse oximetry was different. So we are looking at designing new ways of measuring pulse oximetry, both in hospital and at home. So... Yeah, I mean, this is how you, you try and bring your ideas together and amalgamate them and then move on to the next step. So where do you think possibly in slightly wider terms research is going? Is it going to be more digital? What do you think the in very big, broad brush kind of strokes, I guess, things are going post-COVID? A couple of big pushes. There'll be, um, there's this massive waiting list for people with, with uh, requiring operations. Um trying to improve care for those patients, whether trying to reduce the need for operation by medication or other intervention is one thing. There'll be a big push towards joined up care between primary and secondary care, better integration of information and better assessment of farms of pharmacological use using digital technology. But the, the, the reason I think that digital as a broad brush hasn't really 
taken off in the UK is that if you compare it to introducing a new drug, the way a new drug is introduced is very regimented. Trying to get medtech into the NHS is different. There aren't as many clear guidelines on that, what you have to show, what improvement you need to show, how you cost for it, how you measure impact, how you measure impact, not just on patients, but also on the wider healthcare um, scenario. So I think there needs to be some work done on methodology of, of uh, integrating medtech, because at the moment, it's not far off the wild west out there. I, I can turn up, let's say I've got SME and I've got a, a nice new product, I can turn up and sell it to a hospital. Just off I go. And I haven't really got to show lots of data on how it affects patients, how it affects staff, how it affects hospital. So I think that's the challenge, is, is developing a system that understands the impacts of medtech before you actually introduce it. Do you think that means tightening things up? Um, not necessarily. I think it needs a metric. We need to design a metric. So if you look at asthma studies, it's very clear what the metrics are. You have to reduce steroid courses, exacerbations, symptom control, or improve lung function, or reduce hospital care. And those are all costed. So I can go to NICE. I can say, right, I've shown a 50% reduction in hospital admissions. That equates to X thousand, and therefore going to cost my drug a Y. That's, that's pretty simple. You can't do that with MedTech, because MedTech isn't just about improving patient outcomes it's about improving patient care more widely making care more efficient making it easier making it closer to home making it more seamless how do you measure those benefits how do you prove those benefits and how do you cost for them so i think there needs to be a new methodology or a series of methodologies to actually understand the impacts of medtech so what would be the first step in doing that do you think? Uh, i think it depends upon the type of medtech they need to try and break it down more into what the medtech does maybe have it by system or by uh, type of intervention. We are pushing an idea locally, um, which I've had um, called the Connected Ward. I'm trying to get funding for the Connected Ward, which is where actually you test technology in the wild on a real hospital ward on patients and see the impact on the patients, on the nursing staff, on the doctors, on the cleaners, on the porters, on all the staff on the ward, on the ward environment and have an in-the-round assessment, very granular, of all the impacts that medtech may have. One of the things, with, with a drug, when you introduce a drug, you know what all the side effects are going to be and what the treatment benefit's going to be. With medtech, all you hear is a positive. You don't hear what the downside's going to be. So I think there needs to be a more honest conversation and a real-world testing environment for that to happen. Yeah, great. Brilliant. Great. Thanks very much, Tom. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. There are links in the show notes for more information on clinical research in Nottingham and the website is nottinghambrc.nihr.ac.uk. Our email and social media links are there too. If you want to stay up to date with the Clinical Research Podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you normally get your podcasts. The more shows are rated and reviewed, the more search engines like them and the easier it is for people to find us. So if you can subscribe and rate and review us, you'll be doing it for science, not just for our egos.